Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. This podcast presents the very best recorded panels and seminars with regards to role-playing game design and publishing. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the generous contributions of the panel speakers and of Double Exposure with their amazing game design convention, Metatopia. Episode 123, Designing for Retail. Recorded at Metatopia 2016. Presented by Melissa Lewis Gentry, Kat Tobin, Matt Fantastic, and Zev Schlesinger. Good for retail. Yeah. Uh, uh, let's vote. Uh, can everyone hear okay, even with the doors open? Okay, cool. Um, all right, thanks everyone for coming. Uh, I'm going to do a little introduction of everyone, and then we're uh, how this panel is going to set up is we're going to uh, I'm going to go over some topics that I feel are important. Um, dictatorial started this panel, um, and I'm going to kind of field it to our panel of experts here. Um, and, uh, but I'm going to leave a lot of time for questions at the end, because I feel like this is a panel where um, you as designers might have specific questions that would best be, an- best be answered versus us giving like broad advice. So, all right, so, but to start us off, let me introduce our fantastic panelist. Um, so we're going to start with Kat Tobin. Uh, Kat is the managing director and co-owner of Hellman Press. Um, if you are uh, an RPG fan at all, you know about Pelgrin Press. And Pelgrin is one of the publishing companies that every retail store that sells RPGs has their names in our stores. <coughs> so definitely a model of if you're doing RPGs, they're doing it right. Um, uh, next up is Matt Fantastic here. Woo! Um, Matt... Uh, literally probably has had every job in the games industry that you could ever imagine. I, uh, uh, I've never driven a, I've never sailed a ship across the ocean. Is that a game? No, no, like that's like, there's a segment of the industry that I've not participated in. Oh, the, 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 the freight, uh, the ship, the, the yeah. okay. I've never been involved in a freight So I, I have a list here. Um, publisher, designer, consultant, GM, game company owner, and game cafe owner. Right? Is that all of them? I don't know. Um, More probably. Um, You probably know him best for uh, a variety of amazing micro games. (laughs) Probably more for drinking too much. Uh, Also for drinking and wearing princess dresses and um, uh, being at conventions. Um, uh, And Matt is bringing some amazing um, small publishing and manufacturing expertise to this. Is that that a good way to describe some of the stuff that you have? Yeah, I know a shit ton about big manufacturing yeah. and uh, small, very small publishing. Yeah, combo. <laughs> uh, and then last but not least, uh, we are lucky enough to have 
Uh, Zev, I do not have a slot singer. Yeah, okay, cool. Um, here with us. You might know him as the uh, original founder of Z-Man Games. No big deal. Not a, not a lot of board games there. Uh, and, uh, since he sold that, he's now the head since of... Since he sold out. No, no, I said sold that. Oh. <laughs> no. <laughs> not so. Listen, I'm a, I'm a ruthless capitalist here, and this is a, a selling for retail. This game is about like, since he sold out. you want to make some money on games? This is how you make some money on games. No. We should be so lucky. Yeah, uh, exactly. But no, now you're the head of board games at WizKids, which is amazing. Um, all right, so these are our lovely panelists who uh, are here in the firing squad to answer some of your questions. Um, oh, and me. Hi. I'm Melissa. Um, I am not a designer or a publisher. Uh, I'm a retailer. I run a store called Modern Myths. You might be familiar with our booth over there. We also have two store locations. I'm the business manager for actually our incorporated company. Uh, and the reason I wanted to do this panel is because I consistently have amazing games that will sell at conventions but will not sell in stores. And that makes me really sad where it's a game where if I hand sell it, if I have it in my hand and I talk about it and I'm like, this game is amazing and ignore the packaging and just don't look at the back of the box there. But like the game, once you open it, it's good. Um, I can't be at every sale doing that. And if you have an amazing game, you should be able to put it on a shelf, have someone walk up to it, pick it up, and buy it, because they want to see it. If you want to sell at retail, retail is a marketing tool. It's a way to introduce your game to people who didn't know that they wanted to play it. That's what retail is for. It's not for making huge sales, because you're going to sell more online probably these days. Maybe. Depends. Depends. But um, retail is a huge tool for getting your games into the hands of people who didn't know they wanted your game. Um, so, that being said, um, we are going to start off talking about the external package of a game. And I'm using packaging as a term that's both for board games, for card games, and the front and back cover of books because that is the package that the game material is in. Um, there are plenty of games that I've sold personally just by people looking at the cover and saying, I want that game. Uh, there's one we have right now called Ryutama, which is an indie game. Uh, at PAX East, we sold out of them in about three hours by with a few hundred people who had no idea. I didn't even have to tell them what the game was about. They looked at the cover, they bought the book. That's fantastic, right? That's what we're all kind of, or what you're all looking for, right? And then, like, the fact the game is good is also good. But, you know, you want something that has that quality. So, I am going to turn it over um, uh, to some of our experts. Um, Kat, when, what are some of the things that you think about when your designers, um, when, they're, when they're thinking about the layout and the format for the front of a game? Um, what are some of the things that, you like the qualifications you have for your game book designs. Like, do you have do you have like a layout or a set sheet or anything like that? Um, we don't have anything. Um, do you want me to? Yeah. Um, we don't have a particular set of criteria for our covers. Every cover is different, um, but there are some things that are consistent across all our covers. Um, we look for very strong, vibrant colors. Um, 
We have different colour types for different product ranges. So, for example, our Trail of Cthulhu range is more kind of darker greens. Our kind of science fiction um, game, Ashen Stars, is more kind of blues. So we have consistent colours so that you can see at a glance from the cover kind of roughly what product line it fits in with. Um, but it's important to have a really graphically striking cover. Um, bright colours are important. Um, good composition is important. You want something that's really dynamic. You want to make sure that there's a lot of action and movement in that picture. And it's kind of telling a story as well. Or maybe, you know, it's it's prompting you to go, oh, I wonder what's going on in this? What's going to happen next to, to get the viewer engaged with it? Um, as well as that, um, something that we find very useful is to make sure that it looks really good when it's shrunk down to thumbnail size because a lot of stores will have catalogs where your cover will only be seen that size, basically. So it's important that you can still read the titles um, and read all of the key information when it's shrunk down as well as when it's viewed at full size. And what are, what are some of the text pieces that you require to have on the cover of a book? Um, so the text pieces that we require to have on the cover are obviously the title of the book. Um, we'll always have the author name. We'll have our own company logo. Um, and then we'll usually make reference, if it relates to a particular product line, we'll make reference to that product line. So if it's a Trail of Cthulhu book, we'll have Trail of Cthulhu on the cover as well. And that's, we, we try to minimise the amount of text so that people aren't kind of reading and trying to scan the whole thing. So as, as little text as possible while making sure that you have the key elements. Awesome. Um, so something something I would just throw out as like a general uh, I'm loud. Okay. Uh, something that I would throw out as a general thing is uh, who here is an artist or has an art background? Like, all right. So those of you that don't, at the very very least, have a friend or peer group that includes people that know about art before you make any decisions about your art. You're not an artist. Your shit's gonna look probably fucking real dumb. It, it, you got 50-50 of it looking good or looking bad. Uh, I have some friends that are very, very successful, have done some incredible looking games, but that I consider 100% art blind because they will look at two images and not be able to discern that this one is like a billion times better than this, this, one, this other game that you did. Um, and that like, like, how the fuck did this happen? And sales are dramatically affected by you not having any sense of... of a, just quality of art in general, like the illustration, the painting, that aspect, uh, the graphic design aspect. People, you need people that understand color, that understand fonts, that understand these things. Um, you should be hiring people to do this if you don't know how to do it yourself. Don't bootleg a copy of Illustrator and then like go on Defont and, and you know download the, the first font you see on that front page, throw it together and be like, well, this looks pretty all right. Like, no, it doesn't. It actually, it really doesn't. Well, no, 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 no. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not suggesting. You know, I'm not one. I'm not one. To, I'm not one to suggest uh, giving them money. What I mean is, uh, what I mean is, you are not a designer because you have a bootleg copy of the Adobe Suite, right? Like you are. You just because you can doesn't mean that you should. Um, you know, and, and again, it's not to say that you need to spend a ton of money, but have have some sort of thing. There's a there's a Facebook group even uh, art and graphic design for board games. Um, and for all the like, you know, chatter and not great advice in there, there are enough people in there that will tell you like, this is ugly as fuck. What are you doing? Like, what are you doing? Stop this right now. Um, you go on a Kickstarter, and you will see so many games that are just like, why the fuck would I ever buy this? This game could be amazing, but, like, I, this, is, this hurts my face, right? Um, I'm looking at this, and it pains me that this is the game, right? Um, who here remembers Glory to Rome? You remember that game? I mean, it's, it's older, right? But it's first print run. Like, the game was cool. It was a good game. People loved it. It was, the, it, it was fucking clip art. It was literally clip art with, it looked like 
it looked like your middle man, it looked like Dilbert's boss made it in like 1994. And you were just like, what the fuck is this? And, and it succeeded despite that because it was such a strong design and people were really connected with it. But it immeasurably hurt sales and hurt its penetration and hurt its ability to succeed because it was just ugly as fuck. Because if you can't take the time and effort to uh, holistically create an amazing package top to bottom, then why am I going to trust like that your ability to edit rules, your ability to play test and figure out mechanics? Like, you know, like you need to treat everything as professional, even if you are not professional. Um, that may, you know, and again, it's not to say that you need to spend $10,000 on getting Boris Vallejo to paint the cover for you, but, um, have people that you trust that are, you know, understand color theory, look at your thing and say, hey, you know, like, that's not really, that doesn't work, there's, you know? What, what Matt's touching upon, there's two audiences that are going to be buying your game in a retail setting. Um, there are people who are, do not consider themselves gamers or are not savvy gamers, and then there are people who consider themselves gamey, gamers and are savvy gamers. Um, and uh, uh, the people who, and I, I'm, I more care about the people who don't consider themselves gamers. Retail environments are often places where people who are being, like, introduced to the hobby. People who do not know what the website Board Game Geek is. Like, there, and there's a lot of people like that, and they buy games. Uh, that's, the, that's the new market to capitalize on where you can make some money and, uh, and get new people in. That's, and that's what generally retailers focus on. Um, and like what Matt was talking about, these people, uh, your, your savvy gamer, if they know that your game is winning Spill the Rs, they don't care how shitty your cover is. They're still going to buy your game. Well, I'll say the fact of the matter is you will not if you, if you look Yeah, there, well, there's that. It doesn't cover- matter. Don't, doesn't matter. You will not be taken seriously. Look at, look at Mysterium. This is a great example. Mysterium, look at that game. If your shit doesn't look reasonably like akin to that, you're amateur hour. And that's okay if your whole thing is like it's this like DIY budget bullshitty things like I do sometimes. Uh, but like you need to look that good. That's what you're competing against. It's great that you're indie, that you're fighting it out, that you're doing all this cool stuff. Like fine, but you're on the fucking shelf next to Asmodee products where they literally spent more than your house is worth on you know marketing and and the creation of this this product. You know so so that's what you're competing against. It's not fair. It's not great. But the days of like this VHS tape box full of like a bunch of shit in a plastic baggie. Is is done? That's that's not Listen, a thing anymore. We still sell at least one zombie cinema a year. Well, yeah. So. I, mean, I, will, I will mend that. I will mend that. I will mend that. I will mend that to the aggressively indie, like purposeful nonsense. Like I sell a shit ton of these stupid things in like yeah. you know folders and whatever. But that's part of the the aesthetic. It is an aesthetic choice, not a. Oh, I just don't know how to make art. We're gonna we're gonna pause. You have a, you have a question. Yeah. Well, I just want you to like contrast that with a game like Cards Against Humanity. Yeah. Obviously, there is no art. I would disagree. I would disagree. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cards Against Humanity. There are a million things wrong with that game, and I can bitch about it for like five panels worth of time. But it is a well-designed game. It looks like an Apple product, right? Like that is, and that's not an accident. They they went through many fonts before they settled on that specific font. They went, you know, they did. That was a that was a purposeful choice to make that minimalist, you know, graphic font-based look. But do you think that the absence of art? Uh, no. Well, I mean, the absence of a whole lot of things apparently didn't hurt their sales, but uh, woo. Um, but uh, I think the thing is that again, it becomes an iconic. It becomes a choice. That's the thing. It's right. If you know the rules, you can break them. If you, if you, you know, if you're creating a thing and you're looking at it and you're like, okay, I want this to look this certain way because this is the aesthetic, right? Like, um, 
who here is familiar with Nate Hayden and like uh, Cave Evil would be his biggest thing. Uh, Mushroom Eaters, Psych Raider stuff. Uh, so Cave Evil, Cave Evil is a, 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 a sort of like your necromancers fighting in a dungeon, and it is very tied into this specific aesthetic of primarily like mid to late 90s black metal from the Nordic countries, right? And this, this is a, and this is a scene with an aesthetic that's defined and well-developed over a huge uh, amount of, of uh, work, right? And so this game is tied into that aesthetic, and it's about that. And it's this, 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 this Norwegian death metal, Swedish death metal aesthetic, and the game looks like shit if you don't kn- like appreciate that or know that. It looks like someone drew half of it on the back of a trapper keeper, right? But because it is is specifically an aesthetic choice, like yeah, you're not going to appeal to as many like out, you know that's that's not mass. This is not a mass mass market game, but it but it hits an aesthetic. It does it well. It is purposeful. You look at that. There is a continuity of vision, uh, continuity of design. This is this is an aesthetic choice that was made to look this way. And the kind of shitty you know like original D and D monster manual, like the ups and downs of that art quality, right? This was on purpose. They did this. They did this to 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 create an aesthetic overall, and it carries through. It's not, I just did shitty art because I'm cheap and bad at art. Actually, just two more things as well, quickly. Um, What Matt was saying about fonts, um, I have a bit of a cautionary tale about fonts. Be very, very sure that your game title is legible in whatever font you choose to use. We recently redesigned um, our gumshoe logo, um, and we were super happy with it, and it was all very Scandinavian and pretty and sexy looking. Um, And then we posted it up on social media, and somebody said, oh, that's a G very very careful about the fonts right okay um, and the second thing as well when you're commissioning your cover leave space for titles right there's no point having an amazing looking graphic if part of it is going to be covered up by the title so make sure that you leave space at the top mm. and bottom for titles and author names and that kind of thing as well yeah, when you're commissioning background it. around yeah, it you know, like think exactly. about the- so again going back to the Mysterium one they've got a nice blank bit of sky there that the titles just go over so they're not actually blocking any of the image so that's a thing to, to watch out for yeah, so I'm going to ask Zeb. So you've published a mumbledy fuck amount of games, I think is the metric <laughs> term. Um, so uh, when you're looking at different designers are pitching you games for uh, an art, do you generally, do you hire an outside artist for the designer for publishing? How, what's your process generally? Uh, yeah, we always, hire, uh, we always hire an outside artist. We don't, uh, unless the designer, uh, him or herself, uh, is an illustrator, which is usually not the case. So yeah, we always hire outside graphic designer, outside artist, you know, and uh, you know we I do get the designer involved in the process uh, where possible, uh, but yeah, the final vision would be or the final approval would lay with me uh, for what's on the cover. And so when you're when you're looking and approving these games, uh, being like, okay, stamp this is this is going to be for market. What are some of the things that stand out to you as being that you recognize as being, oh yeah, this is a great design. Anything that you can think of off the top of your head? That's a great design. So it's not a re- for retail question. It's yeah. Oh, more... it's it or what? Like, oh yeah, this is gonna sell. Something like that, where you where you like you well, might not know. Like, okay, yes, this is this is reminiscent of Rodin's line work. Not not like that sort of design, but like, oh yeah, this is this is what a viable product looks like. Well, I mean, it's, it's more of a, a personal taste, right? I can't predict what's going to sell. I can only hope and believe that a particular design that I choose is going to sell. What happens actually in the marketplace? Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, 
So for me, it's more what is the hook of the game? Uh, what is the appeal? What and, and maybe I do ask, uh, I think about the retailers in that I know uh, Game X is doing well. Well, this game has Game X qualities, but does some amazing, cool, interesting <laughs> things to make it its own game. But at least there's something that a retailer or staff inside of a retail shop can say, hey, you like Game X, you will like Game Y because of these similarities, yet these differences. So that is one thing in the design. If there is a way to somehow help the retail staff sell the game because they can immediately, because as Melissa said, they can't always stand around and pitch one game and push one game. But if they can do the five, ten second pitch on the shelf, they go, tell me about this game. <coughs> oh, yeah, it's a Carcassonne, but, you know, you throw the tiles at each other. Uh, and, and then the meeples, you know, go flying up there. And they go, oh, okay, well, that sounds pretty cool. Okay, I'm, and then they'll read more I about it. I would play that game. And so yes, on. Yes, yes, you want me to publish that if I put it together? I'll get it done. So, I'll so I for your Sunday. Yeah, that's, that's a long time. Uh, so, uh, so, yeah, that's, uh, that is definitely something uh, I look at. And, of course, I do look at unique stuff as well. But, again, what, and this later questions is, that what do you put on the packaging to help? The retail yes, itself. And that actually and so segues on. to the next part, which is I think just as important that the front of the game is the back. The back of a game is really important at retail. So I'm going to start on that end and move this way. So, Zev, tell me about you were talking about that, the information. Yeah. Uh, we might skip Matt. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, so, tell me about. Uh, like you talked about that five-second pitch, what are the, some of the elements that you put on the or that you want to see on the back of a game box that will help a retailer? Because how I sell a game, so let's pretend that my phone is a game because I forgot to go pick up games to bring as examples. Um, but let's say that cat has wandered into my store. You have money in your pocket that you would like to spend on games. So what often happen is you'll be like, well, "What's that?" Yeah, and I'll be like, and me, being a general uh, minimum wage paid, overworked, hungover retail employee, um, will have no clue. Um, but what I have taught all of my staff members, and what most retail staff members have learned, is how to fake it. And you pick it up and be like, oh, I love this game. Start with that. Look at that. And you hold it so it's facing them so you can read the back of the box. So it looks like that you know totally about this game and you're showing them the cover and they're like looking at the cover of the box because, oh yeah, well you are reading the cheat sheet on the back. That is key. That is the way retailers, that is how we sell things. If there is not buzzwords and a pitch on the back of a box, the game's not going to get sold. And then once you've read it, then you flip it over and you hand the back of the box to the person so they can look at it themselves. And, like, I picked Mysterium because, like, I literally hand people that box and it sells it. Um, uh, there's the layout of the game actually on the box. There are components that they can see. Um, that sells the game. Like... So, so as I just kind of took over the mic for a second. I want to see motherfuckers with pictures of, like, excited children again. What the hell? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, that should be on the back of Laser Riders. Like, a bunch of kids, like... <laughs> Which, Have you guys seen the Portal game? Yes, yes. The on- yeah. Uh, that game, that, ga- that game box design, the Portal, the uncooperative cake game. It's great. Uh, um, it, that box gets people to pick it up. Um, people, I've had people pick it up not knowing what Portal is. 
uh, and they're interested in that game. I've gotten people to purchase that game that do not know what Portal is. Well, so here's the thing, right? Cards Against Humanity, right now it's like totally like, you know, wildly imitated poorly, but at the time when it first dropped into retail, that was an iconic looking box. That popped off the shelf. You were looking at that and you were like, what the fuck is this about? Like, this is different. This is interesting. Yeah. This stands out. This is, you know, you look at what's going on and, and you know, you can either compete with being really super high quality, really illustrative, beautiful work. I think, you know, that's where Fantasy Flight is, you know, really bread and butter in it. Uh, generally, like WizKids is doing it now. You know, you're having, you're having these like really just clearly super professionally well done visual presentations and that's a way to stand out or you do something that's that's iconic that's graphic that's that's different that's whatever it is and that's going to catch eyes you know like you 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 want to you want to uh, have people see it and say like what is what is this about you know and you, you also want to mysterium is i love mysterium is a really good example here right mysterium it sets a tone right it's called the title the font the illustration like you look at that and you're kind of like you get a sense of like what's going on. Just looking at that, it tells you so much about the experience. And so you're going to look at that and you're going to say, this is relevant to my interests. Or completely not. And if it's not, that's fine. You know, you're not going to change somebody's mind. But the, 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 you can, in, in, with a lot of games, you want people to be able to judge that book by its cover. Right? Like GMT knows exactly what the fuck they're doing when they put out all these war games. And it is not appeal to people that don't want to play these games very much. But it's very appealing to their target demographic. Uh, you know, look at what you're you're trying to hit. Look at the people you're trying to appeal to. Are you trying to appeal to parents bringing their kids in looking for a birthday present, right? Well, that's going to look different than if you're just trying to appeal to the kid by themselves, right? You know, that kid's going to be looking at different stuff. The parent's going to be looking for like, oh, these are certain things. You know, who are you trying to market to? Who are you trying to sell to? What is the game experience like? You can set that tone so well. You know, look at movie posters. Look at iconic movie posters. They give you a sense of what's going on. That's what this should be. It should be a movie poster. Like, that's how you need to think. This is a billboard for your game. This is the one billboard you have. Because you know what? You're not going to get a billboard. So, so this is what you got, right? If you're lucky, you'll have a banner at your booth maybe. But, you know, like, this is, this is you want people to see that and be like, what? I want to play this, like, spooky, mysterious, kind of like, what's going on here? All right, like... And, and, and the idea is that when you have a booth of, of, of one product, people are going to be coming over. But when, you're, when you want your game to proliferate in retail, um, you know what retailers make displays of? Uh, the games that we were like, oh, this looks cool, um, if it's pretty. Um, because not, again, there might be retail management, and some of us are really savvy and passionate um, and, but a lot of people, again, they're minimum wage workers that uh, are literally punching a clock. Uh, and they're not going to put in a huge amount of effort uh, to learn about the games that don't look interesting to them. So uh, not only are you trying to hook your consumers, but you're also trying to hook your marketers, your salespeople, who are like, they're, they're the drug pushers. You want them to push your product. Um, make it easy for them to push your product by having clearly clear information, um, buzzwords, uh, and, and bright colors and clear labeling. Uh, that makes it easy for people who might not be a savvy shopper to look at your game and understand what's going on. Uh, I'm going to move on to the next topic because we got other stuff. So uh, I'm going to try to turn it over to Zen again. Um, so let's talk about um, some of the other things that need to go on your game that people don't necessarily think about 
And I, I, some of these, especially for the people up here, you might think like, oh yeah, this need to go on games, but um, you would be surprised the amount of games that I get into my store that don't have them. <laughs> Make it so. Why don't you you talk about um, some of the so the first thing I have up here is barcodes, which is not the most interesting topic of conversation. Uh, woo barcodes! But why don't you talk about like the process for a board game? Why do you need a barcode? Why why do these designers need a barcode for the board game? Well, the barcode is I mean uh, that's for the retail, right? They a lot of them they have the the point of sale systems. They put everything you know into a computer so that they can just scan it and it, all the information comes up. It's usually tied into their inventory system, so when they start running out, they know when to reorder. It's, it's an identifier. You Most likely you'll need it for when, if you're with a distributor, so you know, they need to know uh, some information. But it's really a help for the, for the retailers. As a consumer, no, they don't care about that. that. That doesn't mean anything. So it's really strictly for entering information into a computer or something and again for the retailer. Uh, so I would say the barcode. Barcode, they, you have the standard, think 13 yeah. digit thing. Usually it's your six digit company code or something or seven digits now because there's so many. Yeah. And then the rest would be usually your item number. Uh, that's, so if your item number is you know, 0001, that's probably gonna be the last you know, four or five digits of the of UPC code. So it's a good way of also identifying where, uh, when the product came out, when in your line, and it gives you information uh, as well, but very simple. There are barcode programs everywhere. You can download uh, them. You just have to do them of a certain size because they have to be scannable. So if they're too small, it's not going to work. You have to uh, figure out the size, and it's not that difficult. It's I don't know, an inch and a half, two inches, or something, or three. But you just take any game that's out there. You make the white box, and you slip in the barcode uh, when you need it there. Yeah. So that's something you should remember for. Oh yeah, go ahead. Well, I have a question about the barcode. Yeah. When I looked it up, there seems to be a couple of systems that you sometimes for book to go with the IBM key number. Yeah. yeah. But with games, sometimes it's the IBM key and sometimes it's the UPC. Uh, so it's a UP. You talk about ISBN. Yeah. ISBN. Right. So ISBN is mostly for books and book trade. So it used to be, and I don't know if it still is now, but for example, if you thought you wanted to get into a Barnes & Noble or a, a bookseller, they use ISBN as their system, and I'm assuming yeah. they still do. I don't know if Barnes & Noble cares anymore about that sort of they stuff. They do, they do. So they yeah. still do. So the only reason you would add one is for that's how what they use yeah. to put in their system to be able to, not to scan it, but at least to know what the book is, the retail price, and again, if they tie it to their inventory system, that's what you need. But generally in the game, in the in the hobby market, it's UPC is what's needed. So uh, I, I stopped using ISBNs a long, 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 long time ago. I don't think it affected me uh, greatly. So unless you're doing strictly like RPGs or something, I would say UPCs are probably the easiest and safest way to go. But it doesn't cost much. I mean, you do have to buy ISBN numbers, yeah. but you could buy them in a batch of 100 yeah. for a, a relatively low amount. And then... Just slap them off. Well, the other thing too is that with UPC, especially, I don't know as much about ISBNs and, and the resellers, but you know, you can get like the I forget the terminology, but you can get like you own that that code, like you Whoa. own that code. Whoa. Whoa. Hey, so they turned off the AC and it got real. Uh, actually, you don't own the code; you own the five or six digit code. Well, yeah, yeah. So you can you can well you can get the you can get the one that it's like a thousand bucks, and you have like <laughs> that's your number, like yeah, and that's you your get, number. Yes, and then you can get, but you can also buy it for like ten bucks. And it's actually the same number, 
as like a razor, uh, you know, disposable razor blade, and the same number as like a whatever. And so you can run into issues. You know, you can you can do that for hobby, and you can get away with that bullshit if you're printing, you know, a thousand copies, two thousand copies, whatever, and you're you're going strictly to hobby retail. Uh, but then you you will run into problems if you're going into any sort of like mass or even specialty because these barcodes are getting reused. So you know, starting out whatever, do the ten dollar barcode. It doesn't really matter. But if yeah, you print a more than one. a couple thousand, if you're, gonna, if you're gonna be serious about it, yeah, get yourself a UPC, a company code, own the barcode. It's your unique number. That's what identifies you as your company. And like I said, the last digits after the company barcode is usually whatever you want, but it's usually the item number, and it, that's actually more for you to to tell. Okay, what you know line is like I used to do uh, I had several line numbers when I did card games I started my item numbers with a four board games I did with a with a, a seven and things like that so that was just for my identification purposes and so on but you can just do alright this is the first thing published so it's zero 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 one second thing published zero 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 two and so on and so forth but you want that company code because that identifies you as that's WizKids that that product is a WizKids product um, Kat will you talk a little bit about how um, uh, books are a little different, especially in the U.S. Yeah. Um, uh, and also that additional number on the end of uh, uh, book codes that Pelgrim does wonderfully and other companies do not. Do you know what I'm talking about? Probably don't. No, I have, I have no idea. Okay, but awesome. I'm really glad to hear that we're doing it so yeah. well. <laughs> right, but yeah. I just, naturally brilliant, clearly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, what number? Um, so in, when... So retailer, oh gosh, I wish I, I brought books with me, but I'm. I'm <laughs> but so um, again, so the the method of selling books, which is I have no idea what the product I'm picking up, but I'm pretending that I know exactly about it. Um, you know the question that people ask all the time: How much is that? A lot of people don't put the price on their books, which is I'm fifty okay. fifty about. Right. Okay. Help. So. I, I totally misunderstood what, yeah. you were, what you were saying. I thought it was part of the barcode that it you is. So oh, Pelgrin and Wizards and Paizo and a, and a bunch of other, um, and especially in the mass market book trade, but I'm not seeing it universally in RPG trade, is uh, for an ISB, uh, the ISBN, the last five digits of your barcode are just automatically zeros. But you can change that to whatever you want. It's not part of your ISBN. So what is general, the industry standard, is to do five and then your price. So if your book is $49.95, the last five digits of your barcode are 54995, which means that when I quick pick up the book, how much is uh, $49.95? Uh, that's actually yeah. that's I think specific to the book trade. It is specific. There, there. It's not ISBN. It's actually the UPC yeah. is the company name, the five, and the the price. Oh, that is yeah. specific. When I did some RPGs, that's what we used to do. Yeah. Uh, but you don't find that in board games or whatnot. It's a specific book thing. Yeah. Board, ga- board yeah. games, you will typically get a shit ton of pushback if you put the price on the back of the box. Um, that's that's generally another issue. That's yes. generally a thing that is wildly frowned upon in board games. I don't know if I necessarily agree with it, but retailers, there are a lot of retailers that will be very mad if you do that. It's absolutely the opposite. I think in my experience, yeah, yeah. In books, stuff, yeah, 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 like you have to, like Melissa was saying, you have to have the price on the back of it. So, 
Uh, yeah, because it, it affects their pricing. A lot of people will price over MSR. A lot of people, you know, there's all kinds of bullshit that goes on in our janky-ass hobby industry. I, I can uh, speak as the person that, uh, when I see, when I am delighted by the price on the back of an RPG and pissed on the when it's on the back of a board game. I can answer that. Um, uh, distribution used to be um, uh, 20% went to uh, the 20% was the cost for the creator uh, and then a distributor bought it at 40% of MSRP and then a retailer would buy it at 50% of MSRP uh, and then sell it at 100% of MSRP that was kind of like the economic distribution uh, I'm not going to go too far into the economic distribution because one it's boring uh, and two uh, there's been some panels already about that um, but uh, what is happening now is I am, as a retailer, buying things at a 35% discount instead of a 50%. Um, the, the, the fact of the matter is, the economy, is that shipping has increased, production costs have increased, um, minimum wage is increasing, uh, warehouse costs are increasing, uh, and what's happening is the MSRPs are not increasing. So... Um, Board games are, what, between $40 and $60 for the majority of board games? Uh, and that hasn't really changed, but uh, a lot of creators want to get more than $8 for their board game. It costs more than that. Uh, and uh, it costs a lot of uh, distributors more than $2, 2 to $4 to get it around. Um, so the margins are going away. And so when it's hitting retailers... We're not getting it for the price that we should if the market was the way it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, and that's why uh, retailers are pricing it over. It's because we're not getting the discount. It's not, it's not like a greed thing. It's like, oh, God, I need enough money to keep my lights on, and I cannot sell this at a 20% discount because that's just not enough money for my rent, my lights, and my payroll. Um, like that, that, it's the industry is is in a kind of janky period right now, to use a technical term, um, and it's really really tough. Um, so that's why with board games, especially, the margins are all over the place because of weight change. Like, because two board games that are the exact same size, one might be super light because it's like it's like a light card game, and one you might pick it up and you could kill someone with it. And you, we've all experienced that, right? Um, and they might be the same price, but one of them cost a lot more to get there than the other one. Uh, and that sort of the change, that's what's causing a lot of the people in the retail end to want to be able to change the price to adjust to, like, how much was eaten up uh, in the chain. Um, well, another, th another thing, too, is that uh, reflective of that, board games are, t uh, books are generally, uh, my understanding, I don't do a lot of book stuff, uh, is generally, the price, the, the, the pricing has generally stayed relatively stable in that, terms of that's production. That's exactly why. Um, so you print it on, that's the price, cool. If yeah. you do a, a third edition or you do this, you know, whatever, you can adjust it. Board games uh, are frequently changing price across print runs, even. Um, so a game that was, you know, forty nine ninety five is now... Fifty nine ninety five or fifty five ninety five, you know, whatever. And then there's stock remaining in distribution that is priced wrong now because there was some remaining in that. And, you know, there's, there's all the you know the, the, the prices are fluctuating a lot more. And so you know you have these two you have two products that look otherwise identical on your shelf, and one of them you've had for a while, another one is a newer copy that you brought in because you were running low or whatever, and they literally have different prices printed on the back. That's been proven by fluctuation. 
That's primarily publisher level. I mean, that's primarily a publisher level decision. Um, but you know, like publishers, you know, I think honestly don't do it enough, frankly. Um, but they do raise price. You know, prices go up uh, between print runs. Uh, oh, yeah. you know? Well, actually, we have two publishers on the panel here. So publishing is, is that your what kind of decisions are you making for increasing prices on things? Are you are you seeing higher bills coming in basically? Um, yeah, like. Printing costs are usually relatively stable, um, but shipping is becoming increasingly uh, a big issue for us, particularly things like with, um, I hate to bring up the K word in a retail panel, but Kickstarters in particular, because there'll be a delay between when you're producing an item versus when you're shipping it. The cost <laughs> of shipping is just jumping way up. So that's, that's a, a, our predominant concern, I think, with um, on the book side. But the, the cost of printing books has stayed relatively relatively flat yeah uh, for for board games and that you're not unless you made a, a dire mistake in your first run you're probably not changing your price yeah. f- for a couple of years or so and sometimes you'll tie it in oh this is a fifth anniversary you know what i haven't raised the price in five years this game is now five dollars more ten dollars more it's very rare that you're going to say oh look this was successful i got to do another run yeah it's smaller than what i did before so my cost went up by 10, 20, 50 cents, I'm not going to raise my price $5 because of that. I'm going to keep it to the same price as long as possible until it doesn't make sense anymore. And that's usually a few years. And again, unless I, we made a dire mistake, like, oh my God, we charged $40 for this game. I didn't factor in something here and it's really worth 60 and I'm losing money. But I've not, I don't think I've seen that happen or I'm blocking it out by somebody. (laughs) So I'm going to, um, uh, we have it's quarter of, and I want to leave at least ten minutes for questions. So I'm gonna pop over to some internal layout um, ideas, and then open up the field for questions. Is that cool with everyone? I just uh, one just quick quick thing, yeah, which quick. actually uh, it's not up there. So just quick spine of the game, very important. You should have the name of the game on the spine because you don't know if the retailer is going to face it out or put it at the edge. Uh, price we talked about. Actually, what we didn't talk about shrink wrap. Don't shrink wrap where it meets at the bottom of where. The retailer is going to store it because the 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 wrap where it meets is gonna it's gonna keep tipping the game over. Thank you. <laughs> and, and don't block the barcode with it. So you know when you shrink wrap, you have to tell them the shrink wrap of a can particular. I, can I that also? Sure. If people that are making boxed games, please place all of the heavier components toward the bottom of the box for that same reason. So Here you don't have these top heavy games that that segues yeah. nicely into <laughs> internal layout. Um, oh, there you go. So uh, uh, most people think of like the internal components of the game as being what's important for you. That's your content, right? You don't need to have marketing concerns inside the game. Wrong. Um, uh, so uh, you, uh, Brian just nailed it uh, with. Uh, um, materials and components and game weight and internal packing materials. This is a little bit more on the, the board game and manufacturing design, yeah. section. Um, uh, but um, uh, there's, um, I'm like looking at my notes, there's some marketing and production realities that need to be taken into account when you're creating a game. So um, uh, talking about a game that ends up in a retail level, because and not, I'm not talking about like the custom special games that are like six hundred dollars and is never going to sell in a retail store. That doesn't happen. Or um, dollars. Yeah. Wants it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You're not bitter. <laughs> listen, we'll talk about that later. Um, uh, but uh, can uh, either of you feel talk about some standards of things that are mass market produced 
of like like as Brian mentioned, like putting heavier things on the so on the bottom. Any any other standards that these designers should probably know and think about that they might not being a consumer. Um, well, so the one big thing that what you brought up that's kind of interesting, but that's a hard one to uh, to work on. I think the the weight. Uh, how about how about perception of value? So what you put, and this goes about like. As, as Matt may not have shown, right? That's probably not going to sell too easily at a retail thing. But you know what? You put a nice two-piece box around it, make it a little bigger and something like that. And all of a sudden, you can charge a little more and the perception of value, at least by the size, uh, helps out a little bit. Because can, can I just say, that game, twice as many cards as Love Letter. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> but if you look at Love Letter, it's half packaged as, half a, as much. In, <laughs> it's packaged in a bag. It's you know with no, a nice little ring and a clamshell. Same size. Or they oh, put okay. it in a, in a big box like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So otherwise so, it could have been like this. But it was so not. if you look at Love Letter, this is a great example, right? Love Letter. Uh, what is the most expensive part of Love Letter? It is not the cards. The cards are actually the cheapest part in the production of Love Letter. The clamshell literally doubles the price to produce that game, if not more. I'm trying to remember the pricing that we did on that. Um, the bag, you know, like everything about Love Letter is more expensive than the game. Um, and that was just to increase and the value. And that is to increase that value. It increases. The other thing is uh, we didn't really hit on yet is, is and it kind of gets to the external layout, is, is how you fit into the shelf. How do you sell this? These, I did these stupidly, and I, I'm happy about it because that's my goal, is to do these little $5 silly things that, that then get picked up and signed with other people that do all these big things. Um, but this is, you know, retailers are like, what the fuck am I going to do with that? People want that, but I don't want to deal with this bullshit, right? <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's okay. That's fine. That's fine for my goals right now. But if I wanted, if I really wanted to sell this, I would sell a shit ton more copies of this at $10 in a setup box. But I just don't want to deal with that. That's not my goal here, right? So so part of this is knowing your goals. But but um, the perception of value, I think, is really interesting because the mass, mass market perception of value is dramatically different than the hobby uh, perception of value. Uh, mass market, you want a game that is this big. You don't want to make a little game. Like not, you know, very rarely do you want to make a smaller game. You want to make a big old game. Uh, you know, Geek Out I think is a great example, right? Geek Out is a fabulous game. I think it's really good. Um, it is in a massive box, uh, similar to Smash Up, right? So Smash Up came out with the planned insert for, you know, they knew there were going to be a bunch of expansions, so they did it like this. Hobby lost their goddamn minds being angry about this. They're like, "You sold me a box of air. Fuck you. You're, you know, like all just everyone was so angry. Well, now. eventually, every, but everyone was so angry, right? Yeah. However, like Geek Out is sold in mass. It's not super hobby. Um, it has less cards in a box of about the same size, and no one ever cares. No one complains about it. People, that, that's fine. It's in a bigger box. Great. That's the size games are. Uh, a similar thing is a lot of Munchkin core boxes. Lots. Of yeah, exactly. What the hell? Like that? You know, you bought Munchkin the first time, and you're like, "There's not what? Hold on. <laughs> this is a hundred. This is 168 like, uh, cards. 168 cards." For, for 25, 25 bucks. But it, it broke the mold, but yet it sold like crazy. And it still does. And people still look at that, and the majority of gamers that still buy that don't bitch about that as much. No. Like, the, the majority of people that are buying Munchkin are not, like, complaining hobby gamers. Um, you know, the, 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 the perception of value is very interesting. You know, like, uh, one thing that, that Zev will really appreciate is uh, I was running the booth for Z-Man uh, one time, and uh, I sold a shit ton of War of the Roses... Uh, despite no one caring about it really at the time because of what it was, because I was like, this game's really fucking heavy, right? And people, you know, you kind of sell it a little bit. I mean, they have to have some appeal to it, but you're like, hold this box, just hold this. <laughs> yeah. And it's like eight. It was eight and a half pounds. And I think Tales was eight pounds. Right? Tales I remember, of Arabia. If I'm remembering oh correctly, oh my gosh, yeah, that game. Well, War of the Roses. War of the Roses was right above it. Right above it. We did yeah. it. We did a little thing. Um, but it was like, feel this value. This is a sixty dollar game. Feel this thing. 
Just hold this. Well, I feel like people would be bummed about that, but it was more—you know—it was more just a. There's a ton of components in this. You know, this is a. You pick this box up and you're like, shit. This is like I could kill somebody with this thing. Like this is. I feel you just feel before you buy it that like there's something substantial to this sixty dollars. You know, and you, you pick up that box and it's like full of air, and you're like, well, hold on, right? Or who here in the RPG side, right? You see the cover, you don't actually see the book physically. You order it, and you know, like. You're like used to you know a three four hundred page like RPG you know core book right, but then this one is like a smaller press whatever or just for whatever reason and it's like hundred pages and you get it and you're like what the fuck is this right and the game it, it could still have all the same things all it needs you know whatever but it's like well this is what the shit is this thing like you know like this is this is a tiny book this is bullshit right yeah, that's a perfect segue uh, um, and I'm I'm sorry I'm kind of rushing through the end I didn't pace this as well but I, I want to talk a little bit about RPG because I'm trying to span all of the kinds of games oh can I jump one one quick thing about internal okay. that yeah. is a, a huge misconception that a lot of people have uh, and this is from the manufacturing side the primary role of a of an insert, uh, 99% of the time, unless you do something really specific like, you know, smash up, whatever, the primary role of an insert is to keep your shit safe, unpunched and unput together to the end consumer. It is not designed to be an incredible way to store your game. That is not the purpose of an insert. Your insert needs to get your game safely in an unpunched state to the consumer. That is the goal. To protect from damage, yeah. Protect from damages. Yeah. It's a bonus if it, it also helps organize after the fact. But it's far more important that your game is not damaged in transit than that it's this cool storage solution after everything's taken apart and put together. Um, so in talking about... Um, uh, so in, in retail setting with board games, most people are not cracking open the plastic and taking a look at what's actually inside the game. Um, but RPGs don't really have that luxury. Um, uh, one thing that people do is they're like, oh, what's this about? And just flip through and, and open to a random page that means nothing and judges it off a random page. So, Kat, you were telling me a little bit uh, about that you have, like, a layout <coughs> checklist for all your games. Will you tell people a little bit about the checklist that designers are required to follow? Um, I mean, there's kind of, in terms of the internal layout, there are some, like, obviously you want the book to be in a, a cohesive kind of fashion so usually your character creation bit's going to be at the start so that people can get a sense of what characters they'll create in that game um, and then you'll kind of get into the meatier part of the rules which are more you know if people have followed you through to the meatier part of the rules then they're probably quite invested and interested in finding out more about it um, and poppy art is important um, a nice clean layout which is easy to read again look at the fonts that you're using um, I've seen some games that have like these really gorgeous kind of handwriting fonts but they're very very difficult to, to read particularly for people with visual impairments so you have to be you have to be sure that your your game is is, is legible if you just pick it up and flick through it um, so that's kind of I think those are I'm super conscious about our time so I don't yeah, want to yeah, get yeah. into this in massive detail yeah. but yeah just making sure that, that it's organised in a sensible fashion it's easy to flick through it has grabby appealing art that works with the setting um, and that enhances the layout as opposed to clashes with it um, yeah. I think are the main kind of checkpoints that you need Alright, so we only have about five minutes left before the end of the hour um, other questions that people have about um, designing for retail. Go ahead. Um, so I've definitely noticed, uh, we've talked about, I mean, good art is good art. It's, it's composition, it's color, it's all that. Um, but even I was thinking earlier when you pointed to the stereo and you're saying, like, do this. What I'd like to both point out and ask is, um, as an illustrator and 
Who here knows about segmentation as a marketing concept? It sucks. It basically means that you uh, you pick whatever your biggest 51% is and you design for them and fuck everybody else. And the sad fact is that, uh, you know, hobby game retail is primarily designed to appeal to boys aged 14 to, you know, 28. And there's a thing that sells and they are safe and comfortable and that's cool. Um, fuck that noise. You're all better than that. Do cool stuff. That being what, what Matt's saying is, is completely legitimate. But also, um, there is now, today, a greater diversity of games and game covers and styles. Yeah. Now, um, the, the biggest thing is less about the style of the art, but yeah. more the clarity of the labeling over the art. At least for on a retail level, if that makes sense. I'll, I'll, I'll throw one thing, except for obviously composition or yeah. the subject matter. I don't argue art a lot, art is subjective. You know, there are people who are going to look at the Mysterium yeah. cover and go, that sucks. Yeah. You can't find it. I think you just go for what you think the, it, what you think shows people what the game is about. The, the atmosphere, the tone of the game, uh, and so on, right? I mean, you're not going to have Mysterium if you're going to have, you know, people doing the Pie Face game or something, right? You're not going to have that kind of yeah. cover. You're going to have a comic cover there. Mm-hmm. And to, you know, yeah, he, he was saying, like, you know, don't go, don't go cheap. And do your own kind of thing, but you can go way different styles there. And as long as it fits the theme or whatever, there's a good chance that it'll still be good. But so many people, it's so subjective that. Well, I think I think to, not, I think to, to push back on that a little bit, there's a, there's there's subjective uh, style questions, but there's also uh, objective like qualities that make professional looking art, yeah. right? And so so you 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 know like pie face looks dramatically different than Mysterium, but you look at both of them and you're like, well, this is professionally done. Someone who went to school to learn about this shit put this together, yeah. you know, like, and you can see that. Most people, even if you don't see it consciously or can define why you see that, you look at something, you look at one of those painterly covers and you're like, well, you know, some effort was put into this, clearly, right? This was clearly an effortful thing which gives the consumer the sense of effort being put into the entire project, the entire thing. If the first thing you see is something that looks like some bootleg hacked together piece of shit, well then, like, why am I going to trust what else is going on? I'm going to cut, yeah, just because we have, I want to get one one more question. Uh, Go ahead, you got your hand up. So Matt, I was at your early talk about designing with uh, production in mind. Zeb, I noted you talked about how generally you're probably going to throw out most, if not all, the art and have an external artist to do it. What can I, as a game designer who's probably looking to just sell my games to publishers, do to assist in this particular process? Or is it simply not my job and it's a good thing to know about? It is not your job. Okay. You're the designer. Yeah. Give me a good game. I'll worry about the rest. But unlike some others, some people say, we don't want to see you anymore. I do like uh, having the designer input, so I'll say, what do you foresee for your cover? And sometimes even when you have a prototype, you might have a prototype cover that we say, oh, is that what you want? Maybe we can do something like that. So I'll ask your opinion, and I'll hire artists or come up with art direction and go, hey, what do you think of this? Do you think this you know, reflects what your game is about? So I'm okay with that, but generally you don't have to worry about that. Different publishers, too, are going to have very different uh, attitudes about that as well. You know, and the bigger the publisher, the less they're going to give a shit about what your game looks like when you're pitching it to them. You know, tiny, small publishers are going to be like, oh, you, you did some art? Like, well, cool, that's, that's money well, in the bank I'm, for I'm, me. I'm, I'm you know? assuming uh, he's not also doing the his own art. I mean, you're not yeah, yeah, yeah. pushing yeah, yeah. it. Well, it's different yeah, if you're an illustrator, but, you know, there's people that will do like a... Right, but as a designer, yeah, yeah. You're, yeah, you don't have yeah. to worry about saying, here's what the art is going to look like, unless you hired an artist 
while you're working on it go, hey, do you want to use this guy here some art? But other than that, you just want to give a good game. Well, we're, we're at time, so I'm sorry. So I'm, I'm going to have to cut it off because we're at time. Um, but uh, tell me, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, PelegramePress.com. Where can people find you on the internet? I don't know. <laughs> Everywhere. Uh, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, WizKids.com. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Um, sorry that I have to cut it off and we weren't able to get through everything. Uh, I don't know. I think people have other panels. I have no more things today yeah, other so than drinking beer that. and smoking weed. So yeah, come talk to, to me about whatever. Yeah, you can buy him a beer and ask more questions. Thank you all so much for coming to this panel. Thank you.